It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 622 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland. It is uh, early in the evening, I guess afternoon, for my guest, who you have already figured out by listening or clicking on this podcast, that my guest today is the great Jeff Siegel. What's up, man? Doing well. How are how are things on the, on the other side of the country? You know, um, just living the dream here. It's September fourth. We're almost there. I won't say we're close yet because we're not. But uh, you know, media day is less than four weeks from now. We've now turned the corner. Labor Day is kind of the unofficial benchmark of okay, it's time to kick things off a little bit. You know, the top hundred lists are going to be coming in the near future. There's just kind of stuff happening. I know the World Cup's happening. I wish I had a Hawks angle to discuss. Uh, we can't really talk about Lloyd Pierce because he's an assistant coach. I know he he is representing the team uh, in China, but um, I can't really do a breakdown of his performance. So. <laughs> As a result of that, um, I have tabbed you to help me with this uh, little mini project here. This is going to be part one of a five-part series. Uh, it's not going to be back-to-back. It's going to be broken up um, over the course of a couple of weeks, probably, and uh, we don't have an official schedule at this point in time, but uh, Jeff has been gracious enough to join me to do like our basically like a, a positional preview of sorts, um, five parts. Five positions. I don't love traditional positions, and we talk about that a lot, especially you and I on this podcast and other places, how um, it's not really you know, the best way to do this, but it also kind of breaks it up to the, to the pack where, uh, it kind of keeps us in check to not, to not go super duper long. And it also allows us to sort of spread things out a little bit. I don't want to talk about Trey Young and John Collins on the same podcast or Kevin Herter on the same podcast. Those guys are the biggest, um, draws. So we kind of broke it up a little bit by position. Um, and the first one today's podcast is going to be about the, uh, about the centers. So basically, all the big men except for John Collins. Uh, obviously, Collins is going to play some center. I'm not sure how much center, but um, the overall gist is, yes, we understand that um, there's some positional flexibility. In fact, we, you and I talked about this a lot on this podcast, but um, the general plan will be to uh, go with the rough positions between centers, power forwards, a couple of wing previews of part two, part three, uh, sorry, part one, part two of wings, and then point guard, um, which is, of course, headlined by Trey Young. So, um, well, before we start on, on this, Jeff, I, I wanted to say... You, you launched something new at uh, Early Bird Rights that I'm not sure if it inspired this particular podcast, but it's inspired a lot of conversations that you and I are having and that people are having around the league right now. And it's this lineup builder that you've basically launched. So A, I want you to plug it, but B, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, in preparation for this podcast, we've been talking about, you know, how the Hawks are going to build rotations. And that's sort of, it's probably a separate podcast, but at the same time, it fills into what to expect from certain guys here. So first of all, what is the tool? And second of all, um, how does it inform the way you're thinking about this team right now? Yeah, I mean, on Early Bird Rights last week, I guess now it is, we uh, we launched uh, rotations, basically, earlybirdrights.com slash rotations. And you can 
pick your team. It defaults to the Hawks, which is nice for for those of us who cover the team and those fans who want to uh, want to uh, look at their rotation. But you can build basically your own rotation. You, know, you put your guys in one you know one through five, uh, and then you can build like when you want them to come out, what position you want them to play while they're on the floor, you know, which guys are going to play together, stuff like that. So I think, you know, the, the point of it is sort of to give, you know, give people a tool that's similar to what you can do in NBA 2K. I don't play that game, so I don't really know sort of what that looks like <laughs> particularly, but I know that you're you like, if you're playing as like the GM or the coach or whatever, you can build like, this is when I want the computer to take my guys out of the game. This is when I want these guys to come back in all of that stuff. And so you can sort of build out the, the rotation and how many minutes guys play, et cetera. And obviously that is all subject to injury and subject to, you know, uh, you know, foul disparities and stuff like that. So there's all obviously, you know, flexibility in all of this, but that's what the tool does. You can do it without having to pay $60 for a video game. If that's, you know, what you do with that video game, uh, in particular. And so, you know, it's for free on earlybirdrights.com slash rotations. You can build, uh, you know, rotations for any team. You can take a little image of it and put it out on Twitter, put it in your, your articles, whatever you want to do with it. So uh, it's been fun. It's been a, it's a fun little tool that uh, I've been using to sort of prepare for the season across the board. Uh, for the Hawks, it's obviously kind of interesting just because their point guard situation outside of, of Trey Young is very weird with, you know, Evan Turner basically being the de facto backup point guard. How much is he going to play? How much can you play him with Jabari Parker? You know, does DeAndre Bembry get to play with those two guys since they can't shoot? Neither can he. Does he play with more with the starting unit? How do you handle, you know, Kevin Herter's minutes? All of these questions are, uh, you know, particularly interesting. You know, based on what we're talking about today, you know, how much center does John Collins play? How much, um, you know, how how much does Alex Len play now that he's the starting center? Even when he was the starter in in Phoenix, he never played more than like 23 minutes a game. Can he play 28 minutes for the Hawks? If not, you know, how much does Collins play? How much does Bruno play? How much does, you know, Damian Jones play? Does Ray Spalding make the team and play a little bit? So, you know, I think those are the those are the sorts of questions that you can sort of answer yourself if you want to, or you can just sort of, you know, see how it works out. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to go over the entire rotation plan on this podcast because we're going to try to break it up a little bit. But uh, like you said, there are a couple of interesting decisions that Lloyd Pierce will be making at center. Um, you know, Collins is almost a separate one, but how much center he plays is something that is going to factor in here. Len, we know, is going to lead the team in center minutes, but behind him you have two candidates. I know Bruno Fernando is very popular in the fan base, um, but Damian Jones might play and might play a significant amount on this team. So how do those guys break down, et cetera, et cetera. You can play with that. And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. So uh, I wanted to lean in a little bit with just how we're going to be doing this and uh, kind of allows you to have at least one headline on every podcast. This podcast can be Alex Lynn, um, the power forward one, John Collins, the um, small forward one, I guess, de facto would be, of course, DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish. And you'll have Kevin Herter on the shooting guards and Trey Young on on the point guards. So kind of spaces that out a little bit. But before we get to the uh, more heavy hitters, you mentioned Ray Spalding real quickly. I'm not sure. In fact, I'm I would certainly bet against him making this team, but if there is one non-roster invite that has the clearest path to me to making this team, the Hawks have 14 guys under contract that can carry 15 if they want to. Um, the guy's Ray Spalding, and Ray Spalding is a center. So let's talk about him real fast here. Um, Spalding is on an Exhibit 10 contract. It's a training camp invite. I think 
probably the angle there is to get him into uh, College Park, if possible. But because there is a roster spot available, I think Ray Spalding is an NBA player. Not, not necessarily an awesome one, but I'm kind of surprised that he even signed with the Hawks in this capacity. I'm a little bit surprised he didn't have a little bit more interest somewhere else. Um, but, you know, with that said, what do you make of Ray Spalding? And, you know, I guess what are the chances that he actually breaks camp with the team? Because the contract would say no, but there's still a roster spot. He's a pretty talented guy. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely the most NBA ready of their non of the uh, outside of the top 14 guys, you know, even including like Charlie Brown and, and Brandon Goodwin. I think Spalding's probably the best player among this this training camp slash two way group. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, I guess, that there's not a two way spot available for him. Obviously, they can make one uh, by getting rid of, of either Brown or Goodwin, probably Brown, obviously, because Goodwin has some utility as a third point guard. And they like to carry a third point guard as the in one of those two way spots. So, I mean, I think Spalding, like you said, I think he's an NBA player. I think he's got, you know, some NBA skills. Most of them come on the defensive end, which is not something the Hawks seem to care at all about, uh, <laughs> you know, dating back to. You know the very beginning of the of the Travis they, they Schlank cared, era. They, they cared more in this draft, I will say. They definitely they cared a lot more. They did care in this draft. a little bit more in this draft, but uh, Spalding is pretty much more, you know, basically a, a defensive player at this point. He is not necessarily somebody who, you know, is going to have a high usage or is going to score well or is going to do anything really offensively. He hangs around the rim. He can pick and roll a little bit offensively, but he's not necessarily you know somebody you would look to to be more than like the very, very bottom option on, on pretty much any offense at the NBA level. You know, he was 16 and nine in the G league, obviously, you know, there, there's a you know much higher pace played at the G league level. So 16 and nine is not what 16 and nine is obviously at, at the NBA level. He's sort of right on the cusp of the NBA blocks, a ton of shots, gets more steals than you would expect for, for a guy of his size and a guy who plays sort of the center position. He's a good prospect. You know, the efficiency isn't there for somebody who hangs around the rim and only shoots like within four or five feet. Like he was 54% true shooting as you know, in his rookie year, sort of as in the G league, which, you know, he played a ton of minutes, played like 800 minutes, I think. And so, you know, that's concerning, you know, if he's going to be this, you know, hyper efficient, he's got to be hyper efficient if he's only going to shoot within four feet of the basket. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, that's what's sort of holding him back from being a, a full fledged backup center. You know, he's got the, the defensive stuff. He's, you know, got a little bit, you know, unfortunately he's got, you know, a little bit of the Hassan Whiteside in his game. We're going to talk about Hassan Whiteside a little bit on this on this podcast just because he sort of fits as a comparison to for, for a couple of these guys where he likes to put up blocks, block numbers. And, you know, that sort of hurts him on the defensive glass. You know, there are some issues with that with Spalding. He's, you know, you know, clearly the worst center that they're bringing into camp. But, you know, it's, he's somebody to monitor. He's somebody who could, has an outside chance of making the roster. I would not expect it. I'd put it at 5%. I mean, he's, he's very, uh, you know, very unlikely to make it because they probably want to uh, to go into the season with 14 guys. They can make a trade. They can use the rest of that cap space that they still have uh, to uh, to facilitate a trade. They've got that extra $5 million as, as a bit of a buffer. So, you know, I think that that's sort of the plan going in. They could, I mean, the, the biggest, I think the, the best path for Spalding to be on this team coming out of camp is if one of Fernando Jones and Len were to get hurt for like a month. You know, if, if something happens, they sprain a knee, they sprain an ankle, you know, particularly badly, break, break a finger or something like that, where they're only going to be out a month, maybe a month and a half, and they can just keep Spalding on, pay him the minimum for each day that he's on the team and then cut him when that guy is, is ready to come back. I think that is sort of 
a path to him making the team. Obviously, he doesn't have control over that. You know, he doesn't, you know, he can't play his way into that that sort of situation, but that would be the path to me. That's the clearest path to me for him to uh, to make the final roster. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's definitely the clearest path. I think I'm a little bit, a little bit, only a little bit, again, a little bit higher on uh, the percentage chance of him making the team, if only because if they can get him on this on the super non-guaranteed contract, it wouldn't necessarily hurt to carry a 15th guy. And if they do that, he is the most logical option. But your point is a good one that you know, Damian Jones, for instance, has some health stuff in this past, has not been the most durable guy in the world. If you were to get banged up a little bit, maybe you want to keep Rice Balding around. Um, the roster spot does have utility for sure. And I think the plan, um, at least as I have maybe not heard it directly, but as I've understood it, read between the lines that the Hawks want to carry 14 for the flexibility aspect. But if the 15th guy is super non-guaranteed, that kind of allows you to have that flexibility without actually having it. If that makes sense, you can just cut a guy whenever you whenever you actually need to. So if they, if they can get Ray Spalding on a contract like that, or I guess Marcus Derrickson, but I I just think Spalding makes more sense for the, for the roster, and he's a better prospect. Um, you know, the Hawks have a ton of power forward guys who can play that position, whereas at center... They have three and a half options right now. It's it's the three guys on the on the roster plus John Collins, and that's kind of it. There's not really an emergency center like they might, like you might want. So that's kind of the clear path. I think it's definitely more unlikely than not that he were to actually break camp with the team. But it wouldn't bother me if they gave him the non guarantee and, and had him made have him make the team out, out of camp because he is, in my opinion. A, an NBA player. It, it's probably a fringe NBA player, to be sure. Like he's not gonna, he's not better than anybody on the roster right now. But in terms of the guys who he's competing with, he could be on a team, and it would not be weird at all. So that's probably enough on him. Unless you have more, because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. I mean, that's at this point. That's pretty much it. I mean, he's, you know, a 14th, 15th, 16th guy on a team, and so yeah. it's you know whether he falls on 16 or 15 obviously makes a huge difference to his, to him, and you know his, you know his income uh, for this next season, but. It's just yeah, that's it's a difficult thing to be sort of that fifteenth and a half person on a, on an NBA roster, and you know obviously right now he's like fourteen and a half, but like they're not sure what uh, what they're what they really want to do with that last roster spot. Yep, that makes perfect sense, and uh, that's playing race balling for now. We're gonna take a short break. We'll come back, touch on Damian Jones, Bruno Fernando, and Alex Lenz. So uh, hold on, and he'll listen to a word from our sponsors. All right, Jeff, we're back, and uh, let's go to Damian Jones. By far. The uh, I guess the un- under the radar, the least discussed player of this trio, and with good reason. You know, Damian Jones was a first round pick, but it's been a while, and he didn't play a ton in Golden State. Still fairly young, a 24 year old guy, but um, in three seasons in which he was actually available to play a little bit, still only played 584 total minutes, and 410 of those were this past season in which he's only played 24 games. People have pointed to him starting. That's been uh, one of the arguments, especially in the uh, Peace Troops comments that I've seen. Well, is uh, I, guess, I guess I guess on behalf of Jones as well, he was able to start for the champs. That's true. Um, the Warriors the Warriors have a hilarious way of operating the starting center position. Um, and just to just to kind of lay that out a little bit, Damian Jones started 22 games, yet only averaged 17 minutes a game. So. Yes, he was the starter uh, for a little bit of time last season, but in no way was he actually treated as a starter on the Warriors. So just wanted to point that out, get that get out, get out in front of that right away. Um, but Damon Jones is someone who was talented enough to be a first-round pick. Granted, he was the last pick in the first round, but this is not a nobody. This is not someone who was just a cast-off that you got in trade. The trade was kind of weird, and I kind of want to discuss that a little bit separately, I guess. But um, I guess first blush, what do you make of Damian Jones? The health stuff is definitely out there. He, there's a reason, um, and it's not just performance that he did not play a ton in his career. There's been some injury stuff 
up there as well. But is this someone who should be in consideration for the rotation? Um, because, um, of course, he's directly competing with Bruno Fernando. I mean, he's in consideration only because Fernando's a rookie and you never know what you're going to get from a second-round rookie. Um, certainly the long-term development of Fernando should take precedent over you know, the long-term uh, development of Jones because Jones, you know, he's 24 but hasn't played a ton. I'm, I'm one of these people, and I've written about this and railed about this on this podcast and others about veteran development and the idea that just because a guy's 24, 25 but doesn't have a lot of NBA experience, that doesn't mean like he's done – growing as a basketball player it just means he's probably done growing physically which is fine because Jones doesn't need to grow more physically like he's physically very good it's really more that he other than the injury stuff but you know physically in terms of getting taller stronger faster like if that stuff doesn't happen as long as he can stay you know healthier that's fine and you know he's gonna hopefully be able to stay a little bit healthier with the uh with the Hawks training staff they obviously they poached the Warriors training staff, so they've got uh, you know Chelsea Lane is is the the head of the Hawks training staff. She's you know very uh, well liked throughout the league for her for her skill in in that area. I think that's something that certainly the the Warriors have missed over the last few years with the injuries that they've suffered, both the sort of big picture, the, you know the much bigger injuries with you know Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant, the even the the ones coming down with Jones and and Kevon Looney and these past playoffs stuff like that, you know she's she's a, she's a, a was a big part of what the Warriors did now is a big part of what the Hawks do if Jones can sort of get into one of her programs and and figure out his injury stuff he probably is the better player right now you know between him and Fernando for that backup center spot or you know one of the backup center spots if you if you count John Collins as a backup center so you know I think that Jones can play I don't think that he should take you know, I think if Fernando is healthy and he's not just a tire fire, that he that Fernando should be the guy and that Jones is more of a, a break in case of emergency, break in case of foul trouble. I'm sure Fernando is going to be in foul trouble if he's, you know, playing consistent minutes. So, you know, for, Jones will get his his chance to play just based on Fernando's, you know, Fernando's lack of of being able to stay on the floor, both from a skill perspective and from a, a foul trouble perspective. So I think Jones will play. He's not you know super you know he's not super exciting i think certainly from a going you know going back to the trade from like sort of an upside perspective he does not have the upside of a guy like amari spellman who had the skill and just needed to like get in shape and would have been fine obviously they decided that spellman was not worth the trouble and they you know they shipped him out for jones on a second rounder so they just they've decided to go with a sort of lower ceiling but perhaps slightly higher floor option in Jones and then of course plus the second round pick which helps them in terms of uh you know the the long term value of, uh, from the trade you know Jones is pretty traditional as a big man really 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 low usage even when he's you know starting ostensibly and playing you know with some of the superstars that he he got to play with in Golden State super low usage guy you know he's somewhat interesting as a passer. I think that's the only thing that I'd be like interested in seeing a little bit more of from him is that he's, you know, other than like, you think of traditional bigs as guys who can hang around the basket on both ends of the floor, block shots, rebound, and, uh, and, you know, score right around the rim, but not step away from the rim. Jones has a little bit of ability to pass. That's just just slightly. I mean, he's a big, he's a turnover machine. Turns the ball over a ton, but at least he put up some good passing numbers and very in his very very limited uh, minutes with the Warriors last season. I think that's something that would be interesting to monitor. Can they run anything through him at the elbow? I don't know if that's something that they're going to be interested in trying because he doesn't have 
he's not the the guy on this team that they're trying to get touches. So I'm not sure that it's something that he'll he'll get a lot of time doing. But it's an interesting idea that he might be able to to play a little bit from the elbow, play a little bit as a playmaker, particularly if they go, you know, say without uh, Trey Young or or Evan Turner in certain lineups, maybe they could run a little bit through Jones. I'm not, you know, it's not something that they should be looking to do consistently, but it is something that popped out when you watch him. And when you look at his stats, like he's got some passing numbers that are at least somewhat interesting. He's another guy, like we talked about with Spalding, who has that Hassan Whiteside syndrome where he just jumps for every block on the planet (laughs) and he puts up good block numbers, but obviously that comes at the price of offensive rebounding for the other team. He, you know, the, the Warriors got smoked on the glass whenever he was on the floor. He cannot rebound on either end of the floor, but especially the offensive glass, they were just getting killed when he was out there. He can't grab a rebound to save his life. He doesn't try to grab rebounds for the most part because he's trying to block shots and trying to get steals and trying to do some other things. So that's something that they're going to need to rein in if he's going to be a, a contributor defensively. Like He's not nearly as good defensively as, like, uh, as Ray Spalding is, but he's got more offensive talent can finish a little bit better, can, you know, is much more efficient in that role, can pass a little bit. We'll see if that's something that is, you know, part of his uh, part of his game going forward. But I think he's got to get better at reading the game defensively. He's got to get better at not jumping for every single shot that comes his way. Like he can not try to block every shot and let it hit the rim and try to get a rebound. It's not something that he's ever done, but maybe he can he can learn that in Atlanta. Yeah, I mean this is a center sized guy who came efficient offensively at least as a as a as a shooter score around the rim not not not, not necessarily spacing the floor offensively but you mentioned the defensive rebounding you know in, at the NBA level in his career he has about a 12% defensive rebounding which is terrible for a 7 foot center that's very bad um in the G League it was better just just to be at least trying to provide some optimism there he's about 18% in the G League which still isn't you know overwhelmingly good for someone of his size but it was better so maybe it's a little bit small small sample size theater um to some degree but you know he led the g league in field goal percentage um two years ago when he played about 45 games there so you know this is someone who's capable of finishing around the rim like you were saying and um not a complete stiff still a guy a guy who's fairly talented rebounding is concerning and defensively he's not going to be a big time force but did, did block some shots as you as you referenced especially last year in the nba with golden state so i mean to your point, quickly as we could sort of bridge a little bit into Fernando. To your point, I, I agree. I think if I, you know, without without seeing Fernando play in an NBA game um, right now, and you know, all we know is summer league and all, all we were able to see from him in college, and just what I what I believe about rookies. If you had to win a game tomorrow, I would certainly rather play Damian Jones than Bruno Fernando. Um, that could be wrong, by the way. Um, maybe Bruno is better than the average rookie. You know, he was a uh, guy who played multiple years in college and is an NBA ready from, from a body perspective, etc. I'm not. This is not me killing Bruno by any means. I just think rookies in general. Um, my thoughts are well, well documented. Rookies are not usually very good, um, especially guys who were drafted um, late in the first, early in the second round. So to that end, if Jones was healthy, I think he is probably better than Fernando. But I totally agree with you in terms of development. This Hawks front front office certainly prioritized Fernando. Maybe not on the level that some fans have. Um, so there was there were some fans that thought he was like a mid first round pick. I was never there on him, but I, I did like the value where they got Bruno as a early second rounder. I think he's a talented guy who was somewhere in that range for me, somewhere in the you know thirty ish range for me in this draft. And I thought was that was an appropriate pick and a, and a solid enough trade to go up and get him. So if they want to prioritize that, I totally get it because this front office definitely likes Bruno Fernando. It's easy to see why he's and we'll talk about him in a second. So you know, all told, I would. I, 
this is a season for me, spoiler alert, which I've been looking for development more than results on the floor this season overall, and that's going to play into a lot of these discussions that we're going to have over the next five episodes, but Fernando is a better prospect, that's pretty clear in my opinion, uh, but Jones is not some 30, not, not some 32-year-old guy, this is not Miles Plumley. this is someone who has a little bit more upside than you might think at 24, not a huge upside guy, but someone who just isn't necessarily, as you were saying, a finished product, he's young enough and talented enough, um, athletic enough to be a, a pretty solid NBA backup I think potentially I'm not sure if that's going to manifest itself we don't we just we just don't know you know 584 NBA minutes is just not a very big sample size part of that was injury part of that was situation in Golden State and even when he uh, was sort of in the rotation this year for the first time um, you know just still a very small sample size so we the jury's definitely out but the offensive numbers were good when he's on the floor part of that's just being with the Warriors but you know he's someone offensively that can certainly help you on this team defensively and on the glass you know, TBD would be kind of where I want to at least put that in my opinion. Um, I guess we can transition into Bruno a little bit, unless you have anything else that you want to add about Jones, because, you know, I do want to talk about Jones for a minute, just because he just being, he's being ignored, which I totally understand because Fernando is a draft pick. He's someone that a lot of fans liked and the Hawks traded up to get. They clearly, they clearly targeted him. So, you know, in the pecking order for the future, it's certainly Fernando ahead of Jones. I just think that that Jones shouldn't be ignored. And by the way, I said this before, but Travis Schlenk was in the front office in Golden State when they drafted Damian Jones. It was not a coincidence that they went out and traded for Damian Jones. You know, part of that was Spellman related to be sure, but I think it was not an accident that Jones was coming back in that trade. I think Schlenk likes Jones. I've not been able to talk to him about him um, directly, necessarily. I've just heard and just read between the lines. I I think they do like Jones. How much they like Jones, though, is uh, kind of up for debate, and uh, we'll see when he's actually able to play in the system. Yeah, and I mean, the the idea when they traded Spellman before we knew what was coming back, I think the the idea from my perspective was that it was going to be Sean Livingston, and it was going to save the the Warriors a couple, you know, six hundred thousand yeah. dollars off the apron, and it was it was a financial trade, and it turned out to be Jones, which makes me think maybe that Schlenk is more invested in Damian Jones than the, than some other people are. I don't know, you know, how Lloyd Pierce feels about him, but obviously Schlenk is the boss. He's going to be the one who dictates, you know, if Jones is is going to be a big part of the rotation, he's going to be the one who sort of can dictate that to to Lloyd Pierce. So. It'd be interesting. I mean, I would imagine that Jones is a better player on day one than Fernando will be, but we don't know that. I mean, certainly there is an opportunity for Fernando to to take the reins on that job, but you know, at 20 years old, coming out of college, second round rookies are just usually don't have it quite, you know, between the years for the most part. Um, he's got every bit of athletic potential you could ask for, you know, Bruno does. So it's really going to come down to like how he reads the game and how quickly he can sort of understand how things work from a basketball IQ perspective. So if that, you know, comes together in, in training camp and all of a sudden he's really out there, then, you know, we may not see a whole lot of Jones, but I would imagine at least for the first few months of the season that Jones should be the, uh, the primary backup uh, center. Yeah. I think, I think if I had to bet, you know, with no injuries between now and opening night, uh, I would probably bet on Damian Jones entering the game before Bruno Fernando. Um, I wouldn't, you know, bet my life savings on that by any means. But if you made me choose, I think that they, I think I'd lean Jones there. I could be wrong, and I would not be upset at all if they went to Fernando for all the reasons that we just said. You know, Fernando's a better long-term prospect, and this is this should be a development year in a lot of ways. But um, that's kind of where I would land as well. Um, let's talk about Bruno a little bit. Um, obviously, I am super invested in the, in the NBA draft and watched Bruno a ton in college. 
Um, I know you're not as big into that world as I am necessarily, but um, you saw him a little bit ahead of the draft, and then of course saw him in that uh, relatively small sample size in summer league. The numbers in college, uh, he was incredibly efficient um, last year in, in his second season. He was he had a 27 per, 65 percent true shooting, um, rebound rate was off the charts. He rebounded the heck out of the ball at the college level. Didn't score a ton, but actually they were kind of using him probably too much in the post, running their offense through him a little bit more than I would like uh, that to be happening, but. You know, physically, you mentioned before he's just kind of, you know, carved out of uh, out of marble. He's a, he's a, he's a fantastic specimen, six uh, ten, like two forty five, two fifty, with long arms. Uh, he's a, he's a definitely a great physical um, profile. Looking forward, um, I guess there's some swing skills, obviously for Bruno. Whether he can shoot or not is a very open question. He took a few jumpers at the college level. They definitely were wanting him to shoot um, threes in, in summer league. I talked to Greg Foster about that a few times. Bruno was not necessarily in that mindset just yet. We saw him pump fake and go a few different times from the perimeter. Um, I'm, I'm sure, I'm very confident that they're going to want him to be on the Alex Lynn, Dwayne Dedman track and at least be able to stretch it out and see how that goes. Whether it goes that well is always up for debate. I think Hawks fans are spoiled right now because the last two center projects that they brought in to have shoot, Dwayne Devin suddenly became you know one of the best shooters in the league from center from the, from the center spot, and Alex Len at least last season flashed the ability to really shoot it out there. That's not always going to happen. Um, maybe there's some some secret sauce the Hawks have that nobody else has, but I would be a little bit wary of just. Assuming everyone is, that comes in at center is going to be able to shoot it, uh, Bruno does have the mechanics, though I think to be able to potentially do it long term. Free throw rate was pretty good, seventy six percent across two seasons in college. So it's not crazy to think that, he, that he'll be able to shoot it. But you know, you mentioned early on, just being a rookie and kind of all that stuff, fouls could be an issue. What are you expecting from him? Like you know, strengths and weaknesses. What do you just make of? Bruno as a as a prospect for people that haven't necessarily seen him play a lot because honestly for a lot of Hawks fans it's basically just summer league and it wasn't a lot of uh, sample size there. Yeah, I mean I think the the most interesting thing about him is obviously the the athleticism and perhaps the shooting potential that's you know he he hit enough from the free throw line and it looked good enough from when he does shoot the ball that it's something that they're going to monitor and they're going to try to to sort of tease that out of him. I think he's got more big man shooting potential than like Damian Jones does, for example, oh, or yes. than, you know, that <laughs> a lot of guys had who they could have maybe had in that sort of 35 ish range. Like Daniel Gafford was probably another guy that they considered, but Fernando's got a lot more potential as a shooter than Gafford does, uh, who went to the bulls a little bit later, I think in the, in, in that, in, in the second round, I think, you know, Fernando is somebody who is, Interesting on the defensive end, you know, obviously that's not, like we said, it's not necessarily a focus for this team, you know, going forward, it hasn't been a focus for them for the last couple of years. You know, at some point they're going to have to have some defenders and Fernando's athleticism, his, you know, his length around the rim, his height, his, you know, just size in general is going to make him an interesting defensive prospect. He's very athletic, came across really well in the combine, you know, tested really well from an agility perspective, has the size and the wingspan to be a problem. You know, wouldn't, it wouldn't totally surprise me if they wanted to develop him into sort of their long-term answer next to John Collins, especially if that shot, if the shot comes along and he's sort of just this bigger, more athletic, longer version of Dwayne Dedman. Obviously, that's sort of the ceiling. That's like the absolute ceiling. Yes. But if he wanted to, if that's the sort of vision that they have for him, then that's that makes sense. That's the vision that I would have for him if I were sort of designing what his absolute ceiling would, would look like. So I think that would be a, a an interesting idea to try to develop him into, into that sort of player like Dedman, who 
had the sort of length and the athleticism to do pretty much whatever you wanted him to do defensively. I mean, we're going to get into what kind of defensive schemes that they can play now that Alex Len is the starter and how different it might be based on the, you know, just the differences between Deadman and Len's game. Fernando is a little bit more like Deadman from an athleticism athleticism perspective where he can sort of get out on the floor if you want him to, or he can sit back and just use his length to, to protect the basket. What they want to do with him is going to be, sort of based on what he can do and what he can recognize and where he can position himself on the floor. You know, I know a lot of, a lot of teams with low IQ centers, which I guess at this point you have to sort of assume that Fernando based on his college tape, based on what we've seen from him, he's going to probably be a low IQ center at the beginning of his career. If he was a high IQ center. Like, yeah, that was one of the things that I was worried honestly about Um, on, on his college tape, you know, the passing and stuff offensively was actually a little bit better than you might think. He has a really um, good feel in some ways offensively, but defensively, you know, as you might expect from from a young, from a young big man, um, awareness was not always there. Um, And the fact that I'm not sure that's kind of, you know, aside from the shooting, that's the biggest question for me is just like recognition and just the the stuff that young big big men have to figure out. Like it's, it's a little bit different than John Collins in some ways, but it's it's some of the same questions that we had about Collins when he was coming out of the draft, different profiles in a lot of ways, but you know, picking things up, executing schemes, that kind of stuff was where you didn't love all the time on film, what you see from Fernando, like he can make up for it a little bit more in college, obviously being the best athlete on the floor and being huge. But in the NBA, he doesn't have that same kind of advantage. So aside from, you know, the obvious stuff that just like maybe it'll work, maybe it won't like the shooting. I think for me, the biggest swing skill for Fernando, if you can even call it a skill, is the recognition IQ and on, on the defensive end of the floor. And that's kind of stuff that you just, you just don't necessarily know. All I can say is that I didn't see a ton of that in college. Yeah, I think that's that pretty much sums up where I am. I think John Collins, just from that particular specific perspective, makes sense as sort of a, a comparison that Collins came in without a with a ton of athleticism, but without a ton and with a good motor like Fernando has. Fernando plays hard, not like John Collins, because John nobody plays harder than John Collins. Yeah, really. but, he, but, but Fernando, he does play hard for sure. Fernando Fernando goes like you're not going to have motivation issues with him. They're not going to have to lure him to the practice facility. Like all of those things are going to be sort of already built into what he is. And so that's really great. The fact that he plays with a high motor, the fact that he wants to be good. He, you know, tries, you know, tries really hard on, on the defensive end. That's going to help him. That's going to be, so that's where the comparisons with Collins on the defensive end make a little bit of sense. The fact that both players sort of grew up both, or both in college and their first two years in the league for Collins. And then we'll see with Fernando just letting their athleticism make up for any mistakes that they made. And and for Collins, he sort of quickly learned, or maybe we quickly learned, he hasn't quite gotten there yet, I don't think, that athleticism is not a, a be-all, end-all for you at the at the NBA level. You can't just be a, a, you know, a 90th percentile athlete and just assume that you're going to be able to block shots and, and rebound really well just based on those, those traits. You have to be in the right positions. You have to recognize when things are happening. Those are the things that Collins are is is still working on. the The rebounding is is better for Collins than I you know than you would have expected. I think um, based on based on the fact that he's you know not that tall, not that long for for a big man, but he he makes it work just because he's the funny thing. I mean, this obviously is not the John Collins podcast, but the funniest thing about <laughs> Collins for me is the fact that he just has this preternatural recognition of where the ball is going to go off yeah. of the off of the rim and yet does not 
that that recognition does not translate in any way to any other part of defense. Like he's great when when the ball is in the air, he knows where the ball is going to go and he can get there faster than anybody else because he's a 90th percentile athlete. But the, that same recognition of like, hey, the point guard is going to the rim and, and there's nobody to stop it. Like he doesn't have that yet, which is it's just always interesting to me when when guys have great unreal recognition yeah. in very, very specific areas, but don't have it in other areas. You're, we're used to guys like Draymond Green and LeBron James who just and, you know, Steve Nash and Trey Young, frankly, you know, who have this recognition that just. Whatever is happening, they know exactly what's going on. You know, maybe Trey Young on the defensive end doesn't quite have that, but that might have been more of a – I don't know whether that's an effort thing or whether he's just too small to act it's, on the fact that he recognizes both. things. <laughs> it's you know? both. But, yeah, no, I mean, to, to your point, though, it's not – you know, the Collins-Fernando comp is not a perfect one. I just I, – I like to try at least to make – comparisons to at least recent Hawks so people can kind of people that only watch the Hawks can kind of get that lens and that was you know Fernando's a lot bigger than Collins and he's a center Bruno Fernando's a center there's this notion at least in some parts of the fan base that Bruno can play the four is more of a combo he's a center for me it's not even a debate like with Collins it was always a debate I definitely lean more towards center than some did coming out of coming out of college and during his rookie season with Fernando it's not really a debate I think he is a he's a center full stop I'd be you know it'd be really nice if he was able to play offensively in space in the way that I guess he could and the way that he's flat with the ball in his hands, but he is a center and it, ma- it makes it even more important, honestly. The rebounding is not going to be a problem. He was an awesome rebounder in college. That's something that's definitely on the plus side for Fernando, but um, you know, recognizing stuff around the rim is his biggest defensive question mark. And that's a big one for a center, and that's part of the reason why, again, if you wanted to play a game today, you might lean toward Damian Jones. But Fernando's just more talented. Like, there's a reason he was seen by some as a first-round talent. I think, you know, in the old days, you know, 10 years ago or more, Fernando would have gone in, maybe not in the lottery, but would have gone in the top 20 very comfortably. I think he was pushed down as a product of the sort of league-wide trends more than anything else. But because if, if you look at his body of work as, you know, a first-team All-Big Ten guy who was All-Big Ten defense, double-double machine, um, big, physical, athletic guy, I think he would have been a top 15, 17 pick 10 years ago. I just think that, you know, the the natural progression of the way, of the way rosters are built now and the, um, I guess, the downgrading of the center position, particularly on non-elite centers, you know, he profiles, at least for me, he always did profile as like a low-end starter, high-end backup type. And that kind of player just isn't valued at center the way that they used to be valued. And, you know, that's a different conversation altogether, but it's just worth pointing out that that's kind of what he looks like. There's some upside beyond that, to be sure, particularly if he's able to shoot it and if he's able to defend. I think if you compare those two things, and that seems like a very simple thing to do, but it's not. Um, if you could if you could do both those things and then combine that with his physicality and his rebounding and all that stuff, then you have an awesome player. But I think safely, you know, a more safe projection would be like a high end backup. And by the way, if you get a high end backup center at thirty four in the draft, that's a great pick. It's not a bad thing at all. But you know, looking too too far into that sort of you know back and forth, I just I just think that that was. It's just important to know what he can and can't do right now and keeping things in perspective. It's always a, a chore with some fans, and I, I totally understand why, to set rational expectations for guys, especially as rookies. And, you know, Fernando, because he's a little bit more seasoned, he played two years of college, maybe he's a little bit further away, uh, sorry, a little bit further along. And as a result of that, and maybe what, what's going to be a simple role relatively, at least on the offensive end of the floor, maybe he can contribute right away. And that would not surprise me at all because he is an NBA ready athlete. But it's still just worth 
keeping in mind that he's going to be a rookie and he's going to be a rookie this whole season. And I'm sure he'll show growth throughout this, throughout the course of the season, but there are going to be stuff that we're, that's going to make you cringe if you watch closely, particularly on defense. Cause that, that's just the way this stuff works. Yeah. I mean, basically if his two swing skills are sort of the defensive IQ and being able to shoot it from outside, if he can do one of those things, he's a, a backup yep. center. If he can do, he might be a starter. Honestly, I mean, if he can, if he can do one of those things well, like if he becomes a plus defender, he might be a low end starting center. He might be even better than that. Not, not he's not going to be a star. I think that's kind of not a. I mean, it's not an impossible outcome. It's just a very unlikely one. I think if he does both of those things, he's a you know middle of the league starting center, like a top twenty starting center. If he does one of the two, he's in that. I mean, this is this is over this is oversimplifying, but he'd be in that like twenty-five to forty conversation among centers, like a low-end starter, high-end backup. If you just do one of those two things, and that's yeah, in but theory, in that's of, a, that's a good, that's a good, that's a pretty reasonable thing to project, I would think. Yeah, I think so. I think if he if he can do one of those of those things, if he can defend it at a decently, if he can defend it like the sixtieth to seventieth percentile level, or he can shoot at the sort of sixtieth to seventieth percentile level. He's going to be, you know, in that in that range where he might be a low end starter. Guys like that do not get paid. So, you know, if he's looking to get paid, he's going to need to do both. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I the, mean, the difference between the twenty fifth best center and the fiftieth best center is like one of them is on a minimum deal and one of them is like Kavon Looney making five well, yeah, million dollars a year. That's honestly that's honestly the thing though. Like, you know, as I was, you know, right now in twenty in twenty nineteen. Again, this is me being prone to doing Hawks comparisons that are not perfect, and this is not a perfect comparison, but Alex Lynn was a top five pick when he was drafted. There is no, no chance, 0% chance that Alex Lynn would be a top five pick in 2019 as the same prospect. No chance. And that's not his fault, but that's just the reality. I mean, maybe, maybe I guess, well, it was, it was the Suns. The Suns are not very smart. <laughs> but um, to the, to that point, like, you know, Lynn's bigger, Lynn's just longer and because he's kind of a freakishly large human being we'll talk about him in a second but bruno it's a good baseline like having the stuff that i think you can kind of pencil in with him like he's going to be a plus rebounder i actually think he's going to be a pretty good defender um even if he doesn't like totally figure it out he has enough already to where i'm not like worried about his defense like being terrible the problem is with his skill set he needs to be good defensively at center because center now is, for the most part, a defensive position. There are certainly some outliers to that across the league, including kind of Alex Lynn to a certain degree. But, you know, I, I'm not worried about his defense. I'm really not. Now, is there is there a lot of wiggle room between where his floor and ceiling are defensively? Absolutely. But I think his floor defensively is not terrible, which is a good place to start. But, you know, as a lot of centers are around the league, you know, we, you, and I cover the, you and I cover the whole league – if he's just the guy he is right now on offense, you know, it's not a distinguishing skill set. Is he a better passer than most centers? Yeah. But if he doesn't shoot it, he's a pretty ordinary offensive player, if not worse than that. So it's, you know, if you're just going to be projecting someone as average on both ends of the floor, in a vacuum, that's a really nice player. But it's not always that easy. It's kind of where I would leave it with with Bruno. It's just... He's a talented guy, and I feel, I feel like it sounds like we're criticizing him, and I'm, I'm absolutely not criticizing him. I thought that was a good move, and a move that I praised to go out and get him at 34. That was a good value, in my opinion. And again, at 34, being reasonable would tell you that if he, if he, becomes, a, if he becomes a rotation player in two years, that's a good draft pick. They gave him a three-year contract. That was a smart move to give him more than two years, et cetera, et cetera. And 
just keeping things in perspective. I know people thought he might be a top 20 pick. Him falling kind of, I think, probably helps the expectation game a little bit. But if, if this guy just becomes a rotation piece for you, even if it's just, even if it's just as a backup center, that's a win. And it, it just is a win. And I'm, there is upside beyond that. I'm not saying that there isn't because there absolutely is upside beyond that. But just keep it all in perspective would be what I, what I would say about kind of everything. But, um, you know, Reddish is the all-time example of this. And we'll come back to that in a couple podcasts. But it also applies to Fernando, albeit on a lower scale. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that makes sense. Uh, a lot of his fall in the draft had to do with the fact that he was a center and had very little to do with how good he is <laughs> exactly. in particular. That's well said. Um, it's just the center position's not, you know, they're, they're a dime a dozen, you know, and it's it's just not, it's not a, a valued position. It's the least valuable position out there. It's it's Well, particularly for guys why... who just don't have specialized skills. That, that's the thing that I probably should have said that even, even plainer, but I like Bruno as a prospect, I don't think that he does anything at an elite level. Maybe rebounding would be the closest you can come to that. But, you know, that's kind of the skill that, I mean, it's important if you're great at it. But the guys who really pop at center particularly are elite defenders or guys on offense who really provide a ton of utility, either as shooters or playmakers or whatever. He doesn't really do either one of those things. Like maybe he can become a good defender, but he's not going to be Rudy Gobert. He's not going to be Rudy Gobert. He's not going to be a game-changing defensive player. I'd be pretty stunned by that. By that outcome. So even if he actually is, you know, the eighty percent, ninety percent version of what he can be, I get why centers fall, and that, those are the guys that fall. I mean, look at I'm looking at the draft board right now. Actually, even guys that you know I thought were clear lottery. I, I thought Gogo was a clear lottery pick in this in this draft, and he fell to what eighteen. Like and that's that's one example, but centers just don't get picked where they used to get picked unless you're elite at something. And he, he doesn't profile again. I like him, but he doesn't profile to be elite at anything. Yeah, and it's in some ways being if he were to blossom a little bit on both ends of the floor, that would almost be better than being elite in one way in one yeah, thing because I agree. He, because he's not going to ever be elite in one area. The most important thing he can do is try to be above average in everything because that's what Agreed. you need from guys who are not high, you know, high end elite players. The fact that he's not going to be there means that he's going to be a role player and role players need to just be to not kill you on one end of the floor or the other, or, you know, obviously both. But if he's, if he's going to be on this team, if he's going to be a rotation player on a team that, you know, is, is trying to, you know, make a conference finals run that means that he's got to be above average on both ends of the floor, you know, just from an overall value perspective, you can't. So that's, that's where, that's what he needs to sort of, that's the path that he needs to look, look toward. And that's the path that he needs to get to. And so I think that's where the shooting comes in. That's where the basketball IQ comes in. A lot of the other stuff will take care of itself. If those two things sort of can, uh, can improve. Yep. I, uh, and again, I like Bruno as a prospect. Uh, that was a good value. And, um, you know, as a player, I, I think he uh, definitely has the ability to be a, to be a starter um, if things go well, and that's kind of all you can ask for um, as an early second round pick. That's probably good for now. Um, just rookies are rookies. I do think that. I mean, I'll, I don't know. Without without going through the whole board of the guys, there there are a lot of guys who were drafted in front of Fernando that have a lot lower chance of being good as rookies than he does. Does that make sense? I think he's actually. Good is relative. Like, I think he could... There's a scenario, a very, very, very plausible scenario where he is just fine on an NBA court this season. And that may not sound like much, 
But as a second round rookie, those guys don't usually happen. There's usually like two or three of those guys every every year max that are like solid NBA players as rookies. And he could be that. I'm not like flat out projecting it, but he has a lot higher chance to be a competent NBA player as a rookie than a lot of first round picks in this draft did. And that's that's just that's that's a little thing, but it's worth pointing out. Yeah, I mean I think if you told me that he was just based on his rookie year alone was the best had the best rookie year of anybody in the second round, I wouldn't be shocked by that. I'd wonder what happened to a couple other guys, but it wouldn't shock me if he was one of it certainly wouldn't shock me if he was one of the three best rookies in in the second round for just just for yeah. the rookie year. We'll see what his you know ultimate ceiling is past that, but you know just for the rookie year, he's at least somewhat capable of of stepping in and and playing for them. Yeah, I totally agree. And listen, I mean, a lot of the second round picks in this draft were a little bit more established than not not, not a ton of one and dones in the second round. But you know, he was someone who combines. He was a legitimately good college basketball player, which not all these guys were. Um, like he was efficient and productive and competent as a, as a college basketball player. And he also has a, he also has a path to playing time that a lot of the second round picks just don't have. Like he would be in the, in, in the group for me that would be com- competing for best second round pick um, early in their career. It would be Bruno Daniel Gafford. If he's able to play Eric Pascal from Villanova, who's now on the Warriors would be like my, pretty clear options from a playing time perspective because that's the thing there, there are guys that i think might ha- might be in that argument that just aren't going to play like i really like terrence Mann. he's not going to play like there's no chance he's, he's playing for the clippers he's not going to play um so fernando combines the path to the rotation with the path to be solid right away and you know that's a good thing. It's not. It doesn't. That's not the end all be all for some. In fact, it doesn't matter nearly as much as the future does because if you're if you're the Hawks, this year is pretty much your least concern. But it's it's a small win for you that he could probably be uh, functional and solid right away. Like and again, it's not going to surprise anybody if he plays a lot on this team because even if you thought Damian Jones was better, Jones could a get hurt or b the Hawks could just say you know Bruno's our guy long term and we're going to play him, um or both. So. I think he's going to play real minutes, maybe not like a ton right away, but by the end of the year, he's going to be a full-fledged rotation player. I'd be pretty surprised if he wasn't, just because based on what I think about this Hawks team, and we'll see plenty of him to evaluate, and a year from now, hopefully, we'll be even more positive about Bruno. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much uh, says it all. There you go. Um, all right, let's go to the uh, headliner now that we're at the 49-minute mark. That's kind of what you and I do. Um Alex Lennon is starting center on this team, full stop. I've done some, it's kind of funny, I've done some national, um, like, you know, preview kind of stuff where I'm representing the Hawks, talking about the Hawks a little bit on uh, some fantasy podcasts and some national radio hits and stuff like that. People, it's almost like they're sheepish to ask me if Alex Lennon is starting center um, because, you know, it's in our minds, it's been sort of a no-brainer the entire time. As soon as Dwayne Devin was gone, Alex Lennon is starting center. It's not even really a debate. He's by far the best center on the team. Um, and the only way that that wouldn't be true is if they were playing John Collins at center, and they're not going to do that full-time. So Alex Lennon is the guy. Last year, um, I guess th- we'll, we'll start here first and try to figure out his minutes, because that's been the biggest question that I've gotten after that was, how much is he going to play? So last year, he played 20.1 minutes a game. Part of that was uh, skewed up by Dwayne Devin missing some time. Um when he was a reserve, it was more like 17 minutes a game. Um, and it, it ticked up a little bit after Deadman missed some time um, during the season. Um, so, you know, it's worth pointing out that Deadman, as good as he is and as high as we are on Dwayne Deadman, he only played 25 minutes a game last year. Granted, he had Alex Len backing him up, 
and Alex Len last year is significantly better than either Damian Jones this year or Bruno Fernando this year. But this is not a team that profiles, at least in the Lloyd Pierce era, the one year that we know of as someone who's as a team that's going to play their starting center 30 minutes a game. Um, but how much is Alex Len going to play? And then we'll go we'll go on from there because I think that's it's interesting because if you're building rotations, go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast with the rotation tool. If Len's going to play 28 minutes or 29 minutes a game versus if Len's going to play 23, 24 minutes a game, that may not seem like much, but those five minutes got to go somewhere, whether whether it be to Collins or Fernando or Jones. And if Len is as good as he was, especially late last year, you're going to want him to play 28 minutes. I'm, I'm just not sure if he's able to do that or not. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Like when he was the starter in Phoenix, he wasn't playing more than 22, 23 minutes a game. So this is not... It's not like a, a thing where his his minutes were tamped down by either the Hawks or by being a backup. He was ne- he's never been a, a more, you know he's never played more than twenty three minutes a game. So even when he was the starter, so we, I think they're going to need. I think they're going to probably play both backup centers. Both Fernando and Jones are going to get not that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me. Not at all. super huge minutes, but like if each guy played seven, eight minutes a game until they figured out which one they really want to go with moving forward. That wouldn't totally surprise me. And then you, you know, you have the, uh, the, the rest left over for, you know, if John Collins is going to play a little bit of center, that's where, you know, the rest of those minutes would come from. It really wouldn't surprise me if both of those guys are consistent parts of the rotation, just based on the fact that Alex Len doesn't seem like now that we're what, five years into his career, six years into his career, that he, I don't think he can play more than 23, 24 minutes a game you know, night in, night out with that, you know, at his size, with what he's asked to do from a, you know, just from a movement perspective, he's just, he might be too big and too just sort of, it's not even like he's out of shape. I just think he's so big that it's hard to move that much body 20, you know, 28 minutes a night up and down the court in a faster paced NBA, you know, a faster paced NBA than we've seen since like, whatever the late eighties was the last time we've seen the, 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 the pace played at such a, at at such a high level. Obviously the Hawks like to run a little bit with, with young and Collins. If he, if Len is going to play starters minutes, he's going to start and play a lot with those guys. So, you know, how much is he going to be able to get up and down the floor the way Deadman did? And how does that affect his conditioning and how does that affect the, the way that he can play, you know, big minutes? I just, I don't see that as an, I don't see that as a big part of their plans, you know, going into the year. Maybe it becomes part of their plan if they have to. If Jones goes down and Fernando is not, you know, uh, capable as a, as a rookie, maybe they they push Len to play a little bit more. Maybe they push Collins to play a little bit more center as well. But I don't. I, I'm not sure that I would go in with the plan of Alex Len is going to play 28 minutes. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, you know, even as a starter last year. And I said I teased this a little bit earlier, but even as a even the games that he started, he was only playing like you know low to mid twenties. The two the last two games of the season, he, he he topped thirty minutes, and he only did it like four more times the rest of the season. One of those was the four overtime game, in which he he played thirty six minutes off the bench in the four overtime game, which is kind of an outlier of all outliers. So, you know, we'll see how much they play him, um, but. You know, again, the the backups this year are not as good as he was last year for for Deadman, so they're going to want to play him. I'm just not sure how much they're going to be able to. That's kind of an open question. I have two questions to ask you that I didn't prep you for, but hopefully we'll get through this. Um, And they're about kind of what he is now versus what he was in Phoenix. Obviously, he's the best he's ever been right now. I think that's kind of what goes without saying. He had his best season by far last year in Atlanta. The, The shooting's the biggest thing, and we'll come back to that in a second. But he had a career low 
rebound rate, including a career-low defensive rebound rate, um, bite a lot. Like That was one of his big strengths in Phoenix, and it kind of wasn't one for him last year. The other one is that, you know, he clearly has the highest usage of his career um, offensively, but, you know, I guess the two questions I'm going to ask you is, A, is the shooting real at 36.3% from three? And B, is he going to rebound again? Because... There's a defensive question. We'll talk. That's kind of a, almost it's separate, but kind of included in the in the rebounding. But um, you know, before we get to defense, is the shooting real, and is he going to start rebounding at the way that he used to rebound? Yes, and yes. I think I that'd would be, imagine that, that'd be the, good, Jeff. If he could I shoot rebound shooting, again, that'd be good. I think the shooting is more real than the fa- than the the chances that he is his rebounding bounces back up. I think the the fact that he. He can hit from the corners. He can hit standstill threes from the corners a little bit above the break. He's not a movement shooter like Dwayne Dedman is. He's not somebody who's they're going to like run plays for or anything like that. But he can stand out there and knock down shots. He's got enough power, you know, coming out of his out of his shot. He's got you know good mechanics. I like what I see from his shot. It's you know it's certainly awkward from the you know a league wide perspective, but. For a center, the fact that he's going to be wide open in the corners and above the break, he can he can make that shot. So I'm not if he shoots, you know, 34, 35, 36 percent, you know, next year. That's that's sort of the baseline expectation. You know, certainly, it would be great if he could he, he could shoot a little bit better than that. The By the way, I, I have a quick stat for you to rebounding. I have a quick stat for you about three point shooting. And this is, I think we knew this anecdotally, but it kind of stands out a little bit when you look at when you look at it this way. Uh, before the All Star break. Last year, it was 54 games. He played 1,031 minutes, and he attempted 99 threes. And we were all like, oh, that's cool. Alex Lincoln can shoot a little bit now. That was nice. He shot 31%, 31% from three, and uh, it was kind of like a mild weapon to kind of you know make his game more intriguing. After the All-Star break, he played 23 games. Now, he played more minutes because Devin, Devin, Devin missed some time. He played 513 minutes, only, only about half the minutes. He took more threes. He took 105 threes in 513 minutes, which is a lot for a center. That's a, it's a three every every five minutes, basically, as a center, and that, that's that's pretty big volume. And he made 41% of them. Now, 41, 41% is not something you can bank on. That seems to go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. That's not a real number, I don't think. But I think the volume actually might be real, based on the fact that they really wanted to unlock him. This is a team that is not shy about getting up threes. That's by design. Lloyd Pierce is playing the percentages. It's not quite Maury Ball in Houston, but this team had a great shot profile last year. They like to shoot threes. They like to shoot threes and at the rim. Alex Len um, certainly was encouraged to shoot a lot, and by the end of the by the end of the year, he was really getting them up from three. Um, so just wanted to point that out. You know, I, I would take the under on him averaging five three point attempts a game, which is what he averaged after the after the All Star break. But would it stun you if he if he shot the ball that much? Like if he shot four or five times per game from three, that would be a lot more than he shot last year on the full season. But we've kind of seen it now, at least for about a month and a half or so. Yeah, and I mean, you would assume that he's going to be playing more minutes with Trey Young. He's right. going to play play more minutes with John Collins, which is going to open up more three point opportunities. Both because John Collins has so much gravity going toward the rim when he rolls to the rim everybody freaks out about that and that Trey Young is one of the three or four best passers in the league and he's going to find Len when he's open and so I think that you know both of those things should tick up Len's overall you know shooting production and just shooting volume based on the, the minutes that he's playing even if he plays only a couple more minutes a game if he gets to 22 23 minutes a game but 
almost all of them are with Trey Young and John Collins on the floor at the beginning of quarters and at the end of uh, of the se- second and fourth quarters. You know, those those vo- that volume makes sense. I think that's the something that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if more of his second half numbers were more uh, representative of his volume going forward than the, than the first half numbers. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And, um, you know, with the small caveat that, I again, 40, 41% from three is not going to be real, I don't think. But, you know, high 30s might be in play based on the way he was shooting it and the way that they think he can, can continue to shoot it. Um, by the way, I, I did see the interview that um, that Len did that, in which he proclaimed himself as a potential all-star this year. Uh, I'm sorry, Alex, that's probably not going to happen. Sure, that's um, fine. I, I, mean, wanted to, I wrote that down uh, just to kind of weave in um, – and it's just a more amusing way. It's not going to happen. But I, no. I like the confidence. And by the way, I really enjoy Alex Lynn. Uh, I've talked to him a number of times. He's candid. He's funny. Uh, I just like Alex Lynn. And, you know, just one of those things I wanted to point out for people who like to go behind the curtain a little bit. Um, I've enjoyed my Alex Lynn experience so far on and off the court. If, so. if you were to make an all-star team just from the Southeast division, <laughs> would you make it? I don't, think, I don't think so. I don't think you'd make it. Um, he might. I mean, if you, if you, wait, 15 man roster or 12? 12, like an all star team. He wouldn't make it. Yeah. Uh, All respect to Alex Lynn, but he he wouldn't make it. Um, It'd be be more, it'd be more interesting to argue whether like Kevin Herter would make it or not. I think, oh, I, wow. Yeah, maybe not just because of the wings. Yeah. Uh, but that's, it, it, that, that's a different discussion for another day. But uh, okay. yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the optimism and the confidence. It's, it's kind of that's sure. really why it's really why I brought that up is that I think Alex Lynn, his confidence has been unlocked in Atlanta. He really, you know, he didn't kill Phoenix on the way out the door, but he said some things yeah. over the last I mean, year or so to make it very clear that he understands that he's in a better place now. Um, sure. And that was one of the reasons I liked the signing. I mean, I got I got kind of killed for being positive about that signing, and it's working out quite well. And part of the reason I liked it was that Alex Len was a guy with real pedigree and real talent that was just utilized in a not optimal fashion by a bad organization. And yep. now he's used a lot better. So the shooting I didn't see coming, so uh, props to him for developing that. Okay, um, the big looming question that I have to ask you is about Alex Len's defense because, you know, he he's not a he's not a trash fire on, on the defensive end of the floor by any means, but it's not a strength, you know. And for someone who's seven two, you might think of him as a defense first player. Last year he was not great defensively. It was not again not awful, but not not a strength. And now that he's a starting center, um, who we assume is going to play more, and you know you, you've lost Wayne Dedman, they need him to be better defensively because as we as we've discussed you know, ad nauseum. This is a bad defensive team last year that looks like it's going to be pretty bad again. Um, Len being better would help them quite a bit, but is that, um, is that a reasonable outcome? Like, what do you make of Len as a defensive player right now? I guess I was maybe a little bit more positive on his defense from last year than, than it seems like you were. I wasn't necessarily, I didn't, I didn't come away from the season thinking like, Oh, this guy was, you know, in the 30th percentile among defensive centers. I thought he was, close to average if not average enough to to make it work i thought he was fine the you know just to to get back to the the your first question about the rebounding i was i'm not worried about the rebounding moving forward at all i think the rebounding will pop back up for him as you know as if he as he you know continues throughout his hawks career as he's more of a uh, of a starting uh caliber player i think he's going to be fine rebounding i think he was fine rebounding last year obviously his individual rebounding numbers might not have been there as they were in phoenix when he was the guy on on the uh, on the glass on both ends of the floor really but they were much better with him on the floor from a rebounding perspective i mean much much better from a defensive rebounding perspective even when he didn't play with john collins 
they still defensive rebounded at like an above average level. And that's which, surprising. Like, yeah. That's, that's surprising. super surprising because they were playing like Vince Carter, Amari Spellman at the four, and they were still pretty decent at, you know, at the at keeping the opposing team off the offensive glass. They were above average when John Collins was off the floor and Alex Len was on from it's, a defensive rebounding it's perspective. It's kind of funny. Uh, I think Alex Len. You wouldn't think of him as someone who is seven two with long arms. Like he he's a monster human being. He's he's more of a Robin Lopez like box out guy than a go get the ball guy kind of guy. And that, I mean nobody's Robin Lopez. Like Robin Lopez is, is the outlier of like forever in his entire career. His team's been good defensively rebounding, but they, he never rebounds. It's not quite that. But Len is not someone who's gonna like high point the ball a lot. He's more of a fundamental. He plays like he's smaller than he is, and that's not that's not a shot at him. It's just that he's more of a box out scrapper than he is like, you know, John Collins like goes up and gets the ball, whereas Alex Len doesn't really do that. I mean, he, he utilizes his size reasonably, but he's not an explosive rebounder. He's just yeah, fun. he he's uses just okay, his size the way guy. that Robin Lopez does, where instead yeah. of being instead of boxing somebody out and then jumping for the ball, they just continue to box out and then somebody gets the rebound. I yeah. mean, it's the same. It's the very similar to like what Stephen Adams does. Stephen Adams, by his own rebounding numbers, is like one of the worst defensive rebounders ever. And then you look at the which we the just know is not numbers. true. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, we, you look at the on-off numbers, and it's like, oh yeah, he's a 99th percentile rebounder when you just account for out. somebody gets the rebound. And that's what rebounding is. Rebounding is not an individual activity. Rebounding don't tell, is don't tell us on Whiteside. Bring it back again. Somebody. Somebody but, needs to get the rebound that's on that's wearing the same color shirt that you are. It doesn't matter whether it's you or somebody else. In fact, it's probably better if it's not you, if you're a big man. Steven Adams is not going to grab a defensive rebound and then dribble up the floor and dunk on somebody. But Russell Westbrook sure as hell will, or sure as hell though. did, obviously. I think Steve Adams should do that more often. But no, I mean, kidding. it'd be great to see if Adams could do that, but they didn't <laughs> need him to do that. They didn't want him to do that. So he just boxed the hell out and got out of the way. And that's, I think, a lot of what Alex Len does. That's a lot of what Robin Lopez does. That's why... When Alex Len is on the floor, his teams are better, you know, from a defensive rebounding perspective. It's not always true. It's certainly in, in Phoenix, they had some issues with that. But when he was on the it's floor, <laughs> they were they were a good defensive rebounding team, the Hawks were. Whether John Collins was out there or not, they were a good defensive rebounding team. And a, a lot of Alex Len's minutes came with small ball fours or, you know, Armari Spellman, who, you know, had some trouble with moving and being, you know, not huge and just all of that stuff, all the stuff that Amari Spellman came with. But like Vince Carter was at the four a little bit and they were still rebounding fine. Like I think that Len's individual rebounding numbers weren't there, but his overall rebounding impact was still there at, at a decently high level. I mean, I'm not talking about him being Steven Adams or Robin yeah, Lopez. He's not that, but, he, but he's fine. He can it's not a bad bolster, thing. He can bolster a small ball lineup to be an above average rebounding outfit. And that's very, very important if they're going to play lineups with like Jabari Parker at the four, which I assume, you know, they're going to do that. That's going to happen. Jabari's going to play the four. Evan Turner's going to play the, you know, play the four slash the one, the four defensively. And so those, you know, it's going to be very important that they rebound the ball well with Collins off the floor. And Len is going to be very good at that. You know, how many minutes he plays without Collins based on the fact that they're both going to start is a little bit weird. You know, you know how they weave those, those lineups together. Uh, is going to be important to see. That's where you know a guy like Fernando has an advantage over a guy like Jones. Jones might be a better overall player, but Fernando is a 
a rebounding machine if his rebounding is what bolsters him into that into the the backup unit with you know Jabari Parker who's not a you know not much of a rebounder Evan Turner who can but isn't you know not a traditional you know uh, power forward size player that's where Fernando can provide a lot of value as a backup center in, in, in the rebounding aspect so I think Lens Lens ability to rebound without being the guy who grabs the ball is fine. Like I think he was he was a good rebounder. He was a fine rebounder last year, an above average rebounder for, you know, in terms of what you are looking for from a a team rebounding concept. And so, you know, I'm not super worried about that for, you know going forward. I'm not super worried about his defense. I think this year they'll probably tailor the defensive scheme toward his skill set a little bit more because he's now the starting center versus Dwayne Dedman's skill set. Yeah, I was gonna, that's I think, also what I was, I was going to ask you as a follow-up because, you know, now that you can plan for Lynn to play half the game or more, um, he's just more he's just more of a drop center. Like, he's he's a, he's 7'2", he's a huge, you know, he's one of the bigger, honestly, people don't really realize how big he is. He's one of the bigger centers in the league. Like, he's a massive human being. Um, so, having him play drop coverage more and kind of letting him maximize what he can do would be helpful and the reason I asked you the question about defense overall anyway is that is honestly it's because of who the power forwards are you know not not, not necessarily Collins I mean Collins is, an, is a separate thing that we'll talk about on his podcast um but when you're back at point when, when you're back at power forward is Jabari Parker that puts a lot of pressure on whoever's playing next to him because he's a bad defender and that's not going to change he might be better but he's still going to be a bad defender and then your other options at back at power forward are strange options like whether it be one of the rookies in a small ball look or Chandler Parsons or Vince Carter who doesn't really rebound at this point in his career and still plays hard but isn't like a great defender right now at power forward so there there's gonna be a lot of pressure on Alex Lynn defensively just because a he's the starting center now and Dwight Depp is not, not walking through that door and just be because of the laughs that'll be put around him because if you're playing with Trey Young and you're playing with that power forward rotation and you know it's going to be a lot of Alex Lynn having to do a lot. It's kind of what it's kind of what is the easiest way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I think he's hopefully they'll they'll tailor things a little bit more toward him. They're he, they're going to drop more with uh, with Len in the middle. I think they'll drop more with Fernando and Jones in the middle as well. They don't, you know, Fernando has a little bit of that Dwayne Dedman in him that he can play. He can sort of defend on all three levels and pick and roll. He can sort of trap and hedge and drop. Um, Len is much more of a drop guy. Jones is probably more of a drop guy given his sort of Hassan Whiteside-like tendencies. Um, Jones probably could defend at least at the second level, at least hedge a little bit, but I'm not sure that they can tease that out of him from a mental perspective. Len is definitely at his size and with his foot speed, he is a drop center which is fine. A lot of the very best defensive centers are drop centers. Rudy Gobert is a drop center. Yusuf Nurkic is a drop center. Miles Turner is a mostly a drop center. Obviously, he's he's got a little bit more perimeter-oriented skills. So the the very best defensive centers are – Joel Embiid is a drop center. The, the best guys are drop centers. Obviously, that's not the comparison that you want to make with Alex Len. You don't expect him to be a, a defensive version of those guys. But that's the sort of scheme that the, those teams can play, and that's the sort of scheme that the Hawks – could play around Len if they want him to be their defensive anchor and they want to play the scheme that makes him most comfortable. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Whether that makes sense for the rest of the team is sort of an open discussion. Like Trey Young is going to have to do more to dissuade his guy from pulling up for threes and pulling up for, you know, foul line jumpers. If Alex, if, you know, because Dwayne Dedman's not there to help him, Alex Len is going to be a little bit further back. That means that Trey Young is going to have to get through a screen this year. We haven't seen him ever do that, so that 
it'd be nice to see him do that once or twice before you commit to playing this drop coverage. But, you know, Trey Young's going to have to get through a screen. Kevin Herter's going to have to get through screens. The guys at the point of attack are going to have to get through screens better, contest from behind, make sure that the the make sure that the defensive that the, the offensive point guard or the offensive guards are not just able to walk into easy jump shots cuz you know as much as we talk about like oh the mid-range shot sucks and the mid-range shot shot is dead if you can walk into a free throw line jumper as a as any almost any point guard in the league but especially the sort of higher end point guards those guys are going to kill you in those in those spots and you know that's that's a big that would be my biggest worry with the hawks if they're going to play this drop coverage with len is that Trey Young, in particular, is not able to get over screens and contest from behind like some of the uh, the other point guards around the league. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I mean, honestly, since we're about to wrap up, I wanted to at least kind of illustrate one of the reasons that you and I have said a couple of different times in different places that, at least I'll speak for myself now, you can agree or disagree if you want to, but I've said that the supporting cast for this coming season is actually worse than it was last season. And the reason, the number one reason for that is replacing Dwayne Dedman with Damian Jones and Bruno Fernando. Um, Alex Len is, was good last year. I enjoyed Alex Len. I think he's going to be pretty good this year as well, but it can't be overstated the drop off that they have with how good Dedman was to what we expect for this year only for Jones and Fernando. Now those guys might overachieve a little bit, but they're not going to be Dwayne Devin. The Hawks are, the Hawks are solidly worse at center than they were this time a year ago. And that's not a shot at Alex Len. Again, we've been positive about Alex Len on this podcast. It's because they've gone from Deadman to the other guys. It's not a Len thing, but I mean, how, how big is that? I mean, Alex Len is going to be playing more. That helps a little bit, but do you agree with my assessment? I mean, overall, this is, this is the center podcast. The center position, even though we've been positive about the guys individually at different at different times, the center position is considerably worse than it was a year ago because Devin was really, really good. Yeah, I mean, this it's not just the center position. I think almost every position across the you know across the lineup they probably are are slightly worse than last year. The 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 way the optimism comes from the fact that the young guys can improve significantly. I don't know yes. how much that Trey Young can really improve on last season. Like you don't see the guys who are great as rookies, you don't always see them take that massive leap forward in year two. Usually that's more of a year three, year four thing. So I'm not sure that I expect Trey Young to make another massive leap forward. Uh, Kevin Herter is in a similar the, boat. The Trey Young thing, we'll, was... we'll come back to Trey Young, but the, the, honestly, the thing with Trey Young is whether he's going to be the guy he was in the first half or the second half. It's not like a massive step forward overall necessarily. It's just, you know, the second half numbers were ridiculous. And we'll talk more about him later, obviously. But, you know, that's kind of the... He had kind of the tail two seasons anyway. So it's, you yeah. know, internal improvement's not always linear and all those things. But, you know, the, something we've been talking about the whole, this whole time and the overarching point is... You know, the optimism for this team this year stems a lot more from those three young guys than it does from the rest of the team because the rest of the team's worse. It just it just is. I'm I'm sorry, everybody. Yeah. It just is. Yeah, the rest of the team is is much worse. For this year expect. only. This year only. For this okay. year. Yeah. I mean when, it's not about going forward. By twenty twenty it'll be fine. It is just for this for this year, if you're looking at their competitiveness last year versus this year, they're going to I would think they should be less competitive this year based on the supporting cast. If somebody from one of the the three young guys takes a step forward, then they can offset a lot of that or offset all of that and even make them better. John Collins is the one that I would 
particularly look at. I mean, we'll get to him, but he's the guy who he got better in the box score from year one to year two, but he didn't add a ton of like new skills. And he, he wasn't, I don't think he was better from year one to year two. He went from Dennis Schroeder to Trey Young. And that's what made him so much better. He was doing the same stuff with Dennis Schroeder. Dennis Schroeder just can't pass and doesn't want to pass and is, is looking for his own offense. And, you know, Trey Young is all of a sudden like, oh, now playing with Trey Young is like playing, you know, playing with Steve Nash. He, he can really pass the ball. He can pass the ball at a, at a historically elite level, you know, I would think moving forward. And so that's that was the difference in John Collins game last year from a, just a sort of overall perspective. That was the biggest difference. He wasn't altogether that much better if he makes that third year leap and that's sort of what i'm talking about with trey is like john collins was really really good his rookie year much better than his draft position and then his second year he was much better but it wasn't because he got better it was because the sort of the team around him got better and and trey young in particular was was entered into the conversation now it's time for john collins to make that third year leap it's either going to be this year or next year but i you know if it's going to be this year that's how that's their path to being really competitive this year yeah, I mean, I think Collins improved more than you think he did, but the, the point, the overarching point is is a good one, that it was a lot of circumstance, and, you know, I brought up Deadman and the change from the whole supporting cast, just to illustrate, you know, we're talking about centers on this podcast, and, you know, losing Deadman, who I think you could probably argue was, you know, he certainly was a top three player on the team last year. Like, that might that might seem controversial to some people, but I, I don't think it is at all. I think he was clearly a top-three player on this team last season um, in terms of just present-day performance overall. He was really good. He was a quality starting center last season. That guy's gone. Um, so that's a big loss. We'll see overall how things go, and we've talked a ton about these guys, so we could probably leave it here for now. But um, worth keeping that in mind, and we talked about it a lot, and I'm sure people are annoyed by me mentioning Deadman repeatedly, but it just it's a big loss to people. I think a lot of people tend to undervalue. And, you know, because we're talking about centers, I had to bring it up. Yeah. I mean, Deadman was the, like you said, he was the third best player on the team. He, had he come back, he would have been the third best player on the team this year, you know, depending what, what Kevin Herter's development looks like. So, you know, and he just fit so incredibly perfectly. That was the other part of it that made him so valuable is that he, his fit with Collins and with Trey was just as seamless as you could get. And he's going to be great in Sacramento, you know, for people who like to follow X Hawks as they move on, Sacramento is going to be super fun and Deadman's going to be great for them. Marvin Bagley and John Collins are very similar type of players. You know, Darren Fox is going to be running the show. He's not the, the same kind of player that, uh, that Trey Young is, but it's going to be similar enough to where Deadman is going to show a lot of the same stuff that he did over these last two years. And he was such an important part of the Hawks team that it makes it's, his value had so much to do with his particular skill set and how he fit with everybody else. And so, you know, they're going to miss him in a big way. And it's going to be a, a pretty significant downgrade from him, him and Alex Len to Alex Len and Bruno or Alex Len and Damian Jones. Yeah. And hopefully that's mitigated a little bit by Alex Len continuing to improve. That would be helpful. And maybe Jones and Fernando will overachieve a bit. But uh, all right, that was plenty. 75 minutes on the center position. And this was supposed to be our lightest, our lightest one, Jeff. We're in some trouble, I think, for the. Uh, yeah. I mean, podcast. if you thought that this was going to be a, a short podcast, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you're right about that. Um, anyway, please plug yourself. We talked about your lineup tool. That's something that people, again, should keep in mind. And if you want to play with that, it's been a lot of uh, entertainment for me and. I think Jeff too in the last uh, few days since it launched, but uh, plug anything you got going on, man. I know it's uh, sort of the dead period, but you're always busy. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's relatively dead right now. I'm just writing as things sort of pick up. Uh, whenever I whenever I feel like it, I wrote four things last week, but that was just because it sort of happened that way. Uh, you can find all of that over at earlybirdrights.com. I wrote three things about rookie scale extensions. So if you're interested in rookie scale extensions, I've got preview for everything over there. Um, and then I wrote about Eric uh, Eric Gordon's. Uh, veteran extension with the uh with the houston rockets if you're interested in that that's also over at early bird rights earlybirdrights.com slash rotations is where you can play with uh, the rotation tool we've got some more interesting stuff a lot of what i'm working on right now is not will not launch until the season starts and i've got just under seven weeks to finish all of this so that's what I, the, I'm, i've got uh, another big project in the works and hopefully that will launch with the uh, with the new season on october uh, 22nd there you go. Please follow Jeff. Check out all of his content. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to this show via the platform of your choice, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all those places. And uh, we'll come back with a new show in the near future. So stay tuned for that. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.